This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear. You don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drinks. My special guest today on One for the Road is an author, speaker and blogger. She has written one of the most inspiring and popular sober memoirs to date and I feel so lucky to call her my friend. So please welcome the fantastic Claire Pooley. So Claire, welcome to my podcast, One for the Road, and it is an absolute delight to have you on as my guest today. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a delight to be here and happy dry January to you. I know it is the month of the year, isn't it? It's like just everyone's raving about it. And it's that time of year where we can feel really fashionable. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But I think um, now it's a bit different from what it used to be. It used to be like a trend to do dry jam because you've gone mad over December. But I think things have changed a lot lately because people are more sort of health conscious now and 
they're questioning their drinking more now, I believe. Do you? Uh, definitely. And well, I, I think it used to be seen, quitting drinking used to be seen as something that you only did if you had a problem, um, you know, or if you were an alcoholic. And, um, and now it's seen as being something that you can just choose to do as a sort of positive lifestyle choice. So, you know, in the same way that you might give up gluten or you might decide to go vegan, you know, you decide to quit drinking. And it's it's not necessarily being seen as something you do because you have to, but something you do because you choose to. And I think that's a really great move, frankly. Yeah, I, I like that phrase, I choose not to. But And I find also that the younger generation now, it's not such a thing. I mean... <laughs> Well, I reckon that alcohol for the younger generation, my children's generation, um, alcohol is like the Facebook of drugs. You know, it's, it's the yeah. thing that their parents do that's really untrendy and, and they don't really get it. Um, you know, whereas when I was a teenager, I didn't know anybody who didn't drink, not one single person. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, that's, that's a big change too, I think. So I'd love to know what it was like for you growing up. Did your parents drink? How old were you when you started drinking? What was it like? Well, you know, I I talk to a lot of people about their drinking who say that part of the reason they started drinking is because they had a really tough childhood or adolescence. And, you know, I don't have that excuse. I had a a really happy childhood and I was, uh, you know, I had no, I had no excuse to want to blot out my feelings and, and stuff. But... Uh, what I did do is I grew up with a family who drank pretty much every night. You know, my dad would come back from work and he would pour a double gin and tonic and we would always have wine with dinner. And then often my dad would stay up late and would uh, drink whiskey while he was working. And I thought that was perfectly normal. In fact, I thought it was kind of sophisticated um, and uh, and so continental. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I thought wine was part of a healthy Mediterranean diet. And I guess that meant that when my drinking became a daily habit, um, I didn't question that. I didn't think that that was necessarily a problem. It took me a very long time to to think that that my drinking was abnormal in any way, shape, or form. And I didn't want my kids to grow up feeling that. I didn't want them to grow up looking at their parents drinking every night and thinking that was normal either. No, I get that, and uh, it creeps up on you as well, doesn't it? When when <laughs> you know you start to drink at home and have a glass or two. For me, that escalated quite quickly to more because my tolerance got used to it. And then I've kind of found it as just any old excuse, you know, like we've heard before, good day, bad day, any day, you know. But for me, it become a coping strategy, just not for maybe the traumatic experiences I had back when I was a teenager, but just for life you know I, I had a busy mind and overthinking and stuff and it, it was just the go-to yeah and and the problem is you get out of practice of dealing with your feelings if you're always numbing them so you know like you I would I would drink to celebrate I would drink to commiserate I would drink when I was happy I drink when I was sad I was I drink to wind up I drink to wind down you know all any occasion really and when you numb all of those emotions, feelings, um, you know, mindsets, uh, you then get 
unused to dealing with them without the alcohol. So when you do have to deal with stress or anxiety or you know, boredom or any of those things, you can't do it anymore without something to take the edge off. So so it just it's really slow and really pernicious and you don't even realize it's happening. And then you suddenly look at your life and you think, oh, God, I, I'm really I've copped out of life altogether without realizing it. A hundred percent. And when you say about boredom as well, that's a, that's such an easy slippery slope, isn't it? Because I, I lived on my own for a long time, which I loved because I loved sitting with my own sort of company. But I realised my own company was drunk most of the time. So I wasn't sitting with it. I was in this blur like a Pink Floyd video. <laughs> Well, drinking alone is a really interesting topic, I think, because it used to be something that, you know, taboo, people didn't do it, you know, it was people only really drank in company. And at some point, I think around the 1980s, drinking alone stopped being taboo. And, you know, like you, I lived alone for a long time. And, you know, I used to watch Bridget Jones and and she would drink by herself. And, you know, the Ab Fab girls would drink by themselves. And, um, you know, drinking by yourself just didn't seem like an issue if you lived alone. You know, it just, it was just, you just didn't have any choice. That's what you did. And I think, again, if somebody had said to me, drinking alone is a really bad sign and you really shouldn't do it. I might have, again, questioned my drinking a little bit earlier. And I tell that to my kids. I say, look, you know, there are, if you can stick to three rules with your drinking, you might be able to drink moderately and happily for the rest of your life. Um, and those three rules are never drink alone, never drink more than three nights a week and never drink more than three drinks in one session and if you can do those three things, then your drinking is probably okay. But I got, by the time I was in my mid-20s, I wasn't doing those three things. That's a really good um, suggestion, actually, because we're not really ever saying you should never drink because you know Em, my wife, and she mm. could have a glass of wine and then make a cup of tea half an hour later. And my husband too, same. Yeah. Uh, obviously we couldn't so but we I think we wrecked it because we didn't stick within certain boundaries and for me it was accumulative drinking mine accumulated from um, drinking in the pub to then going to the off license buying four cans to have as a beer with a dinner to then buying wine in the in back in the day it was three for a tenner I don't know if you remember that you was <laughs> oh, yeah. more up class on that and uh, <laughs> mine was as does three for a tenner uh, and then I was drinking one of them but then that I always say when you go from the first bottle to the second bottle that is a massive slippery slope because you won't in the second one for that oh I just have one more and you find actually it's not long before you finish that second one. But for me, yeah. I was actually finishing the third one as well. Then I started putting on weight, like a lot of weight. So I Googled low calorie alcohol, which is crazy in itself. And it came up vodka. So I ended up a litre a night of vodka. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, as I said, it just happens so gradually, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it, it's, it, it, there's a, a really important bit of brain chemistry, which I'm not sure how, how many people are aware of that, you know, 
if when you get to a certain point with any drug, it basically flips a switch in your brain where, um, you know, you become you become dependent on the dopamine from whatever it is you're doing and you can never unflip that switch. So so if you if you are very moderate about your drinking forever and ever, you will probably never flip over into into addiction but once you flip that switch you can't flip it back again there's there's a great aa saying which is you can turn a cucumber into a pickle but you can't turn a pickle into a cucumber (laughs) and and you and i at some point flipped that switch by accident and we became pickles and here we are (laughs) my husband is a happy cucumber um so and so is your wife and you know well done them at what point did you realise actually your drinking had got out of hand or, or was there several? Because you was never a rock bottom drinker, was you? you you've, to me, I'm a grey area drinking coach and, and you fit into that bracket. Did you drink every day? Uh, I did. I, I did generally. I mean, I went through, like you did, I'm, I'm sure, and everybody does, um, I went through endless periods of of setting myself rules so so I would quite often give up for a month or I give up uh for several for several weeks I give up drinking during the week or I give up drinking um when I wasn't uh, when I was at home you know all those I went through all those different methods of trying to moderate my drinking which just became increasingly exhausting and painful uh so you know so Left to my own devices, I would drink every day, but I tried very hard not to for a very long time. But and, and I was never drunk, you know. I was, I was, or very, very rarely, because like you, my tolerance just gradually built up. So I could drink a whole bottle of wine, which I did every day, pretty much, uh, without it even hitting the sides. You know, nobody, anybody having a conversation with me would not realize that I had drunk that much. So, and my life was functioning. It wasn't functioning brilliantly, but as far as anyone else could tell, it was functioning fine. So, so no, I wasn't a rock bottom drinker. And whenever I did those, whenever I did those little, little questionnaires on, on Google, you know, when you type in, am I an alcoholic? And this questionnaire comes up and you answer all the questions. And some of them I'd answer yes to quite a lot of them. Most of them I'd answer no to. And then I think, well, you know, maybe I don't have a problem at all. And for me, that's a big issue is the way we make everything so black and white. You're either a normal drinker or you're an alcoholic. And that's just unhelpful. You know, the question isn't, am I an alcoholic? It's a total red herring. I hate the word alcoholic. I never use it about myself. I say I'm an alcohol addict. And, uh, you know, because there's a whole range of people in between those two extremes. And just because you don't fit the classic picture of an alcoholic doesn't mean that alcohol isn't screwing up your life. And the question we should be asking is, is alcohol messing up my life? And if the answer is yes, then you need to do something about it. Oh my God. I love that. I absolutely love that. And that, that is the criteria I work in. You know, it's not, I, I find um, personally, most people that approach me are women um, that grey area drinkers. Cause I think they think, about it more and I'm talking as a man that for me I I would be in so much denial I I mean for instance a lot of people know about the rock bottom I had in Eastbourne where I had four days in the pub all day probably 15 pints mm-hmm. then drink a bottle of vodka on the beach came back had an emergency appointment with the doctor 
two days later, I still ca- I still started drinking again. It, you know, even that huge rock bottom wasn't enough for me. But it's I always say if drinking alcohol affects your life in any way, then maybe you should just start to question it for a start. Yeah. You know, well, you know, when people ask me, how do you know if you're addicted to alcohol? Um, the for me, the biggest sign is how much room it takes up in your head. And, you know, if you've read, if you've read my book, The Sober Diaries, you know, you know that I talk about the wine witch and the wine witch for me was this voice in my head that just became almost constant. And it was a voice that said, are you going to drink tonight? What are you going to drink tonight? Have you got enough booze in the cupboard? Where are you going to buy it? Um, Did you drink last night? Um, uh, And if so, uh, should you be drinking tonight or should you leave it till tomorrow night? I mean, it just went on and on and on and on. And it was, it took up so much room in my head that there wasn't enough space for other stuff. And for me, the best thing about quitting drinking is the peace in your head. You know, it's just that space that you can then use to do other things with. So, so my answer to do I have a problem with alcohol is how much room is it taking up in your thoughts? People who don't have an issue with alcohol don't think about alcohol when they're not drinking. You know, they think about it while it's in front of them, maybe, but other than that, it's just not an issue. It's not on their mind. It was on my mind all the time. Yeah. And me, I mean, but mine used to kind of lay dormant in the morning because it was my own thoughts. Then Mm. used to go into hiding a bit like Dracula, you know, (laughs) into his coffin and then um, it would be my regret and the shame I felt. And, you know, I'm not going to drink tonight because mm. last night was a joke. And but all that shame and regret was related to the alcohol too, right? You know, yeah. the, it, the the morning thoughts. And, and for me, the worst ones were like 3 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. And you wake up and you think, which I used to do all the time when I was drinking, and I don't do at all now. You know, and I'd wake up at 3 a.m. berating myself, you know, like you say, you know, why did I do that? Have I got no self-control? Am I so pathetic? Um, what did I do? What did I say? And, you know, those those are all related to the alcohol, too. And those thoughts also go away. Um, yeah, it, it destroys you, everything, your self-esteem. You know, I, I used to wake up at 3 because I think, you know, it's the neurotransmitters are rebalancing and, you know, you, you're literally wide awake, but really anxious. And then you're yeah. worrying about, but I used to wake up on the sofa because I would have passed out. M would have hoped that I would have passed out, which is really sad. I would creep into the bedroom. And then in the morning, if M turned around and said, you okay? I thought, all right, I wasn't too bad last night. But if she didn't turn around and I'd say, you, you're right, and she didn't answer me, I, I would then think, what have I done? Because yeah, yeah. most nights were a blackout, you know. And how can you live like that? And and this happened over and over again. And I kept saying to myself, I cannot go on like this. I just cannot go on. But I also kept making excuses past one o'clock in the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's a never ending cycle, isn't it? You wake up in the morning thinking, I'm never going to do that again. And by by lunchtime, you're justifying it for whatever reason and, uh, and you know, lining up the evening. So and the problem with that is that you do end up just hating yourself. And yeah. that's an awful position to be in because you spend an awful lot of time with yourself. And if you don't like yourself, yeah, then 
then it's a bit miserable, really. Yeah, because you you had a good job, three kids, happily married in that. And, and for me, I had my own business, everything. You know, I was on the TV show for 10 years. Everything was going my way. But it was the one thing, I, how can I do all this in my life? Yet this thing controls everything in my life, you know. And, and it was like being with a toxic partner yeah, that I, yeah. I couldn't get rid of you know and and I used to say to myself oh well I've been with this person 40 years now I don't know what life would be without that person so I'd rather stay in this toxic Mm. no man's land do you know what I mean and and like a toxic partner they convince you that you are nothing without them you know I thought that without alcohol I would be boring I would be um I wouldn't have any friends I would never go out and you know, I, I, even when I when I quit, it was I sort of did a deal with myself where I said, OK, you know, you've had your fun for X number of decades. And now it's time you thought about other people. And this is your penance. I didn't see it as a as a positive thing at all. I was really you know, I really thought that that my life was pretty much over. <laughs> I know it's but a lot of people do as well. They, you know, they play the victim is like, Oh, I'm not normal. Why can't I drink like everyone else? But there's not many people I know that drink normally, but it's, I believe mindset is really important. Positivity, but you know, we're now recording this halfway through dry January. And there's a lot of people that a halfway having lots of different emotions right and at the end of jan they've done 31 days right but i think we both know that's the hardest bit because mm-hmm. that's when you have to recalibrate your sleep learn certain coping strategies lots about yourself sitting with your feelings and if people can push through to around the 100 days that's when you really really see the benefits. Yeah, I, mean, I, I completely agree with that. And I think the problem with doing dry January, which is a, a great thing to do and to give yourself a break and to think about your relationship with alcohol and all those things, but it's not representative because what you're getting is you're getting the hardest bit without having got to the real benefits. So if you're judging your view of what life is like without alcohol on what it feels like in dry January, then you're not really seeing the benefits. And, uh, and I agree with you, I would push on to 100 days and then decide whether it's something you want to carry on doing or not. Um, because uh, yeah, you're you're doing the hardest bit, and you might as well carry on and get to the good bit. Yeah, and and you know what happened for me was um, I decided to do three months, and after a month, I actually walked my dog, and over in the corner was the local pub in Wandsworth. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it, and I just stood still, and I thought, what what is going to happen at, at the end of this three months? This almost apprenticeship that I'm doing to see what life is like without something that I've used all my life to cope with a million things, right? What would happen in three months? If I went back in there and had one, I knew within a month, I'd be right back to where I was before. And Mm. that was my kind of pivotal time then that I realized actually this had to be a life choice for me because I didn't want to do that three months and and then go back like snakes and ladders all the way to the beginning and throw a three. I think I think what you said there is really important because you said that you knew 
that if you went in there, you'd be right within a few weeks, you'd be right back to the beginning. I don't think you can quit drinking forever without knowing that about yourself. So, you know, I tried to quit drinking a number of times, but what would happen is I do a, a few weeks or a few months and then I'd think, oh, you know, I've done really well. I've I've learned my lesson. I've recalibrated somehow. And now I can start drinking in a normal and moderate way. And, and I'm not going to fall into the same trap again because I am older and wiser and I know better. And I would start, you know, I'd just have a glass of wine and I'd stop. And I think, hey, yeah, I'm so clever. And then the next week I'd do the same, but I'd drink two glasses of wine. And within a few weeks, I was right back to the beginning. And I did that several times until I got to the point where I knew the same way I know, I know the same about myself with smoking as well, is that if I had one cigarette, I would be smoking a packet a day within a few weeks. And I'm exactly the same with alcohol. And you sort of need to know that about yourself. Otherwise, you will always end up with that voice saying, oh, go on, you can drink now. Yeah. You, you know, you've been really good. Now it's okay. Um, so you just, I, I would suggest to anybody who is thinking about quitting drinking, but isn't entirely sure, just see whether you can drink moderately. And if you can't, you know, try really, really, really hard to stick to those rules to just drink one drink, you know, three times a week, and that's it. And if you find that easy, then fine. But if you find that you can't do it, and that drinking moderately is just not in your lexicon, then that is a really good thing to know about yourself. Fantastic advice. I mean, I always, I work with analogies, and I drive people around the bend with them, or <laughs> people like them, but I just view it as as the toxic X and mm. for me moderation is like dumping the X and sleeping with them at the weekend. <laughs> That's it, brilliant. You, you're, ne- you're never going to get over it, are you? And then on the Monday morning they go and you think, well, I've got a week of freedom and whatever. And then at the weekend I had to cut the ties and alcohol, mm. the wine, which the beer monster, however you want to call it is very, very crafty. It lays dormant. Yeah. And where we're doing this podcast now, the beer monster is in the corner there, right? And mm-hmm. and if I whisper to you now, I'd say drink lunchtime, it's here's a prick up, hear it go. <laughs> oh, God, I've heard, oh, happy days, I'm in there. And it will try its very, very best to try and creep in. It's like you've got to shut the door and keep it shut. You open it one millimetre and it's going to get in. Yeah, and, and you know, the thing about moderation for people like you and me is you know we might be able to do it if we tried really 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 hard and we were really strict with ourselves but what would that life be like I mean what it was like for me is I just spent my the whole time wishing my life away so I would say for instance I'm only going to drink at weekends and and I would only drink at weekends, but then I get to Monday and I think, God, I can't wait till Friday. Yeah, and I'd spend the whole week wishing it away and wanting it to go as quickly yeah. as possible so I could get to Friday. Now, you know, you've only got one life and that life is not, is short and you don't want to spend your life wishing away five days of it so you can get to the two days a week when you can drink. And that's a miserable way to live. So, you know, so I feel even if I could moderate and um, I, I just, it just wouldn't make me happy. It wouldn't uh, be. For me, it, 
I, I had to divorce it. And, you know, I talked the other day about grief as well. Mm. I had to grieve that part of my life because it wasn't always terrible for me. You know, it helped me in several situations. I used to go out and have a good time, especially when I was younger. It was towards the end when I absolutely wrecked it by drinking indoors on my own. And then I become more and more dependent on it. And then it was the, the half an hour of my drinking that was the only pleasurable bit because I had the dopamine hit. And then mm-hmm. after that, I would go into my slump of depression. Here I go again. I know where this is going to go. I'm going to end up passing out. Um, and, and the whole relationship was just miserable. So I had to cut the umbilical cord that was between me and alcohol. Mm-hmm. And it was like ripping a comfort blanket away from a child because I'd used it to blunt yeah, same. And you know, you know, uh, something I found really helpful, and I don't know if if you would as well, but because it's very easy to think, okay, this isn't fair. You know, how come my husband can drink the way that he does, and I can't drink at all? And I spent quite a lot of time feeling a bit sorry for myself at the beginning. And the way I got over that is the way I look at it now is that. I believe that we are all given a lifetime supply of alcohol that we can tolerate. And I just drank mine all really fast. and yeah. <laughs> There isn't any left. And yeah. it's not unfair. It's just my husband chose to spread his out and he'll probably have enough left to last him his whole lifetime. But I've drunk mine and, and that's, and I just, and in a way I don't regret it in a way I, that's the way I do things with everything. If I have a box of chocolates, I eat them all in one go and then I feel very sick and don't eat any more for ages. Whereas again, my husband will have one chocolate a night for like several weeks. And, and that's, it's just the way I am. I like, I'm a bit all or nothing and I just did all the booze and now I'm doing none of the booze. And, and there's no chocolates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I love the way you think, Claire. I think you're very similar to me, actually. You're very logical about it. When you gave up, though, I know that you had um, the situation 11 in the morning with your little two inches of wine in the bottle, and it was the cup that you poured it into, right, that made you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was basically a, a morning, I, it was after a birthday party, my own birthday party, and I woke up with a chronic hangover. And I, I always, going back to those, you know, those little questionnaires that we all used to fill out to try and work out whether you were an alcoholic or not. One of the things I thought meant that I wasn't an alcoholic and I didn't actually have a problem with alcohol was the fact that I never drank in the morning. So I thought, yay, I'm okay. I don't drink in the mornings. If I was an alcoholic, I would drink in the mornings. So I had a really hard and fast rule that even at the weekends, uh, even on holiday, I would never drink before midday. Anyway, that morning I felt awful and I knew that the only thing that was going to make me feel better was more booze, hair of the dog. And as you say, I found about two inches of wine left in a bottle, which I thought was a sign because I never leave anything in a bottle. I was like, oh, look. Um, But my kids were there. I had three small kids at the time. They were all in the kitchen uh, making a racket. And I thought, I can't drink in front of the kids at this time in the morning because even they would sort of think that was a bit bit weird. So I got a mug and I poured it into this mug. And then drank it and felt much better but then I looked at the mug and the mug said the world's best mum and it was just that you know I already hated myself at that point and I was already ashamed of myself but that was just a new 
low as far as their self-hatred and shame went and and that was the last drink I ever had so it's amazing because um I didn't have that experience but I received a text message that it was the way that it was framed to me was how would you like to join me to stop alcohol three months it wasn't I think you need to stop mate you look like crap Mm. but there's a lot goes behind that um, you know, for a lot of people, that looks like spontaneous sobriety where you've just stopped like that. And But it's a lot of sort of background work that goes towards it. And it's almost like the final straw, isn't it? Yeah. I and mean, there, there was a great expression I heard, which was somebody uh, somebody said, I'll, I'll try to remember who it was, but they said um, that they, she gave up drinking when she realised she couldn't lower her own standards fast in, further, faster than her own behaviour. Wow, that's good. <laughs> so, and, and I think you just get to that tipping point where, you know, when you first start drinking, 90% of it is fun and 10% is is, is yeah. A bit, a bit miserable because you've got hangover or whatever. And gradually that balance shifts, doesn't it? So you get to the point, and you described it really well earlier, where you, you know, 10% of it is fun and 90% of it is really shit. Um, and, and eventually you get to that tipping point where you think, okay, this is the fun bits are just not worth the yeah. miserable bits anymore. And, and that's the point, hopefully, at which, at which you quit. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a saying, I used to buy into, and I think so many people do, which is you can't quit drinking until you reach rock bottom. It's bollocks. You know, if you wait till you get to rock bottom, it's going to be so much harder and you'll have screwed up so much of your life. And there is no need to get to rock bottom. You just need to get to the point where you the downsides are not worth the upsides anymore. And, and that's the point where you just need to stop. Do you not think things are changing, though? Because when you wrote the book, right, I remember, and you might not, I first met you at the Jago in Dalston, and you oh, were... I remember, Dave. Oh, well, I you know, I was just being meeting you for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was just newly sober then, and I came along to this thing, and I realised then the power of community was absolutely essential for me because... Mm-hmm. When I was drinking, I could be in a room full of people, but I could be the loneliest person in the whole room Mm. Um, because I was struggling with so many issues in my life and everyone was laughing. I was laughing along, but inside I was really shallow and hollow. And when I came along to that event and I met you and the Rock Sober Boys and William Porter and that, Janie Lee, I realised actually, wow, this community is my hope here because it's the connection is the opposite of addiction. And that's how I hooked in to my support network for, for sobriety. And I think that's the line you went down. You started a blog, right? Yeah. And, and that blog became my community. And, you know, I, I don't think it's, it might be possible, but it's certainly not easy to quit drinking without a community around you because that community provide support and also reminds you why you're doing what you're doing and um and then you know eventually you're able to help them back and that's a really great way of reinforcing you know your own decisions i mean the whole it's a really helpful thing to do and that's what the whole of philosophy of alcoholics anonymous was based on but the truth is now there are 
you don't have to go and sit in a church hall in a in an AA group to find that community. There are lots of different ways of doing it. And I, I did it online initially anonymously, but now there's you know the the sober community on Instagram is amazing and it's not anonymous at all. Everyone is out and proud and and really and and you know really enthusiastic about this world. It's not a miserable place to be in. And the other thing I realized through these communities is ex-addicts are really great people. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we've all, we've all got a lot of life experience. Um, I, I think ex-addicts tend to be empathetic because we know what that people are struggling often in secret with something. Everybody is struggling with something and, and we're all or nothing people, you know, we, we have big hearts, I think. Um, so I've met some of the best people through the sober community, um, the people like you, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have met you otherwise. I wouldn't have met M. Um, yeah. you know, I, I wouldn't have met Jamie, you know, all these, uh, it's, it's a, it's a really great community. Well, in fact, Janie, didn't she, um, was it a book review on a radio show or were you a guest? But she read yeah. your book. Yeah. So, so, so I was booked um, to appear on the Steve Wright show and it was the 2nd of January. And actually I went straight from Woman's Hour to Steve Wright and it was a really, and I was really nervous about the whole thing because having been blogged anonymously for a couple of years you know I was now coming out under my own name telling my most sordid secrets to the whole world and it was really nerve-wracking and I met Jamie while I was waiting to go into the studio because she's one of Steve Wright's co-hosts and and she said oh my god I've really been dying to talk to you because I read your book and um, and I've quit drinking and I realized I'm just like you. <laughs> and, and it was just a really amazing moment. And we've been friends ever since. I know she's lovely, Jamie, but where she did it differently, she actually didn't tell anyone for over a year. Mm, and yeah, right now she kind of regrets that because she knows what the community's like. And, you know, I, I've met Janie a few times and um, she's just so lovely. But I really echo what you said there about the people, the humbleness and, and the you know, the truth in people that have stopped drinking is just such a lovely community. And I'm, mm. every day I'm grateful for the lovely messages I get and, you know, all the people I've met. It's, that alone has changed my life. And that breaks one of the false myths that, oh, sober's boring. I won't have any friends. There'd be nothing to do, blah, blah, blah. How am I, what am I going to do on holiday? What am I going to do when it's my birthday? It's all rubbish. It, it's like so the opposite of what all these statements are. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think one, one way to look at that is to look back at, you know, to look at your kids and look at your own life when you were a kid. You didn't need alcohol to have fun at a birthday party, you know, or to enjoy Christmas or, or, you know, or for any of those reasons, you know, kids, kids uh, have, have the, the wildest emotions and, and fun and enthusiasm for life without any of that stuff. We just teach ourselves that it's necessary, um, but it's, it's just not. But society's built that way, isn't it? it? It's like, it's just the accepted thing. And I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately and I can't quite articulate it properly, but it's so ingrained in society now that when people stop drinking, it's this absolutely enormous thing. You know, you see sober celebrities. Yeah. 
Adele, I mean, I think she started drinking now, but she's now sober. It's, it's actually, it's, it's crazy how it's so ingrained in our society now, alcohol. And that's why I just want to normalize it. Actually living a sober life is the best thing that you can do. It's look at your life, how things have changed. You've written sober diaries and we're going to go on to your other book, which fascinating, but your family, your, your marriage and health, you know, I know, I know when you gave up, you was diagnosed, wasn't you with breast cancer? Yeah. Yeah, I was. And, you know, I don't know, I don't know how I would have coped with that without if I'd still been drinking. Um, you know, I know that I would have drunk to get through it. And as a result, I would have cried in front of the children. I would have been a complete mess. I would have had to have dealt with really difficult conversations with my consultants and stuff with hangovers. And yeah. it just the whole thing would have been miserable. And it's funny how I, I thought for so many years that alcohol gave me courage and I didn't realize that actually it was making me increasingly fearful. And I've only become truly courageous since I quit drinking. And uh, and now I deal with fear now in a way that I could never have imagined uh, seven yeah. years ago when I quit. I get that because when you first stop, you're not used to dealing with anything, are you? You know, a brown envelope comes through the letterbox and you're like, oh, what is that? Is that a tax bill? Or, yeah, yeah. And and so you gradually learn. It's like learning to walk again in a way. And then you gradually learn to deal with these things. And, you know, I had a similar experience with M. that when I gave up drinking a couple of weeks after that, she was diagnosed for the third time with cancer. And mm-hmm. there was part of me that was thinking, oh, well, this is the wrong time. You know, Dracula would come out of his coffin then and thought, right, yeah. I'll get you now. And, and I sat and thought about it. And I thought, you know what? Last time she had cancer, I was not present. She she was laying in bed at night. I was drunk downstairs. And that makes me feel really guilty to say that. And this time I need to be present for her and for yeah. myself as well. Because, you know, I needed to be aware of my feelings and how I was going to cope with it. Not be in a drunken haze, just blocking it out. Because those issues don't go away. You just postpone them and then they come back with a along with a hangover <laughs> and, and and then you drink again to get make them go away again you know it's all it's all just floating around in the face you know so how did writing your book change your life because it is probably one of the biggest books in the world in the sober community isn't it um yeah uh i mean i, I can't even begin to say how what an impact it had so the book was based on the blog that I started writing which called mummy was a secret drinker and and that I wrote as therapy so I wrote it just for me and I didn't really expect anyone to read it and I think as a result it's very real and very raw and it's written in real time and I don't think I could have written the book if I'd done it with hindsight, because when you look back at stuff, you know, a year later, two years later, it's never, it never feels the same way. You know, we always, it's never as bad as we think it was, uh, because you have a sort of self-protection mechanism. Um, But this, you know, the book was all written on stuff I'd gone through at the time. So, I mean, I guess in terms of how it changed my life, it saved my life, because as I said, it was my therapy. It's created this community which really helped me and I helped them and 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 when I had 
cancer, that community really, really helped me as well. I mean, I had people, I had this woman in, I'll never forget, who sent me an email from Wisconsin. And she said that she uh, she was very religious and she um, had a church congregation of about 200 people and she'd got them all to pray for me. And she didn't, she didn't even know my real name. You know, she'd never met me, but she was you know, she would did that for me. And, you know, things like that are just so powerful. And like you, you know, I get messages every day from people who've read the book who say that it really helped them because it showed them that life without alcohol was possible and it made them feel less alone. And that's, that's why I decided to publish in the end because I didn't want anyone to go through what I'd been through. I didn't want anyone to think that they were the only person in the world that, that had this problem. And I didn't want them to, I wanted them to, I wanted them to understand what the process of being sober, getting sober was like. Cause I'd read so many memoirs and stuff and it was all what they would do is they would talk about about the you know what life was like when they were drinking and then they get to the end and they say and then I gave up and now everything's fine and I thought well hang on hang on (laughs) rewind how did you give up was it easy was it difficult how long did it take to feel normal what were the you know what what were the the things you had to go through um is this normal am I uh, all those questions I didn't feel anyone was answering and and that's that's really what I wanted to do is to answer some of those questions for other people and that's why I think the community is brilliant because I is another analogy I use um you, you're the queen of quotes you love the quotes I love the analogies <laughs> right it's like we go to the B&Q store the big superstore and we buy a big empty toolbox right and you have to fill it with all the tools that will serve you because we're all different and we've all got different upbringings different relationships with people and alcohol and you have to fill it with things that like for me I can't do meditation I just can't yeah no me neither I think we have our brains are too active as I see it (laughs) but I can actually do breath work you know so that that will work for me so you have to fill it with the things that will work for you and when you reach out to the sober community you can find the tools on the shelf that will work for you and you put it in your toolbox and that could be memoirs or it could be science-based books Mm -hmm. it could be science-based podcasts or chats like this you know um your hobbies reinvent the hobbies that you used to do when you were younger and stuff you know keep your hands hands occupied people like jigsaw puzzles or or start doing watercolors and stuff just mm-hmm. to occupy your mind, you know, um, and change your life to to just make it easier for you rather than just sit there biting your nails. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you find also that once you've been through that process, if your life hits the skids for any reason, so for me it was eight months after I quit drinking when I got the breast cancer diagnosis, you use all the same tools to get through something like that too, you know. so. Yeah. Dealing with the fear and anxiety of of cancer treatment, I did all the same things, you know, all the same, um, you know, so so my toolkit included things like obsessive cleaning <laughs> just to keep my hands busy, you know, um, but going out for long walks with the dog, listening to audio books, um, you know, it's whatever, whatever helps you, but it teaches you, you know, they're great skills to learn for for. In many life situations so it's not 
there's all those all of those skills you learn you'll use again and I think it's also equally important to realize that there's a void left so a bit like when you do split up with the ex the toxic Mm. ex you have to reshape your life and fill a void and so for me it was exercise you know I've helped organize a trip to Morocco this year for people that are at the stage where they've stopped drinking but what's next yeah and there yeah. is a what's next you know yeah there uh, is although, although I have to say I, I I think I think it's important not to worry about what's next no. to start with because no. you know the, the way that I see it, it's the first year is really about looking inwards it's yeah. about dealing with your own emotions it's about you know going through all those those yeah processes of working out how you got to where you got to why you got to where you got to where you want your life to go you know I mean all of all of that stuff it's quite an intense time and it can be quite exhausting so I don't think anyone should beat themselves up for the first few months or or the first year at least uh, about what you know what they should be doing Uh, but I think usually when people get to year two, suddenly they've got loads more time, they've got loads more energy, they've got loads more enthusiasm, and they're thinking, okay, now what am I going to do next? And as you say, there's a big hole to fill. And and yeah, people go on and do extraordinary things. And for me, it was writing. And and I, I writing is my new career, it's my passion, it's my hobby, it's you know, I get paid for it, which is even better. And uh, yeah, so I never would have ended up here if I hadn't quit drinking. Exactly. I I, I say it's like phase two of sobriety. Mm. Because for me, it was around 18 months to two years that I concentrated on reshaping my life to live without alcohol. And then long came phase two, where I thought, now I've kind of tackled that. Um, I need to start doing other things and you know like this podcast whatever it, it, I just love doing it it's like meeting you for lunch like we did that day you know it's just a mm-hmm. chat and it's great and it helps people and but talking about your writing so you wrote the sober diaries but then you went on to write authenticity project right so yeah. that's fascinating yeah so um I, I mean I just love the process of writing I found it really you know people talk about mindfulness and and we, we assume that you to to do mindfulness you have to meditate or something which as I like you was absolutely useless at meditating but actually it's you don't have to meditate to to do mindfulness you just have to find something that takes you out of yourself yes. that sort of achieves I mean I think Buddhists call it flow you know where where you're just not thinking about what's going on around you. You're so absorbed in what you're doing that time just seems to slip past. And some people achieve that through through, uh, colouring or art or music or exercise. And for me, it's writing. You know, when I'm writing, my mind just is, is... it just it just gives my my mind a break it gives my head a break it's you know it's it's proper mindfulness it just takes me somewhere else um and I wanted to carry on writing but I didn't want to carry on writing about my own life partly because I felt like I'd been there done that and also because by this stage my kids were sort of teenagers and you know it's their life too and it's uh, they they quite rightly don't want me writing about them uh, but I don't see how I can write about my life without involving my kids because, you know, they're really important to me. So anyway, for all those reasons, I thought well, I, I should start 
writing fiction. Um, but it, funny enough, fiction isn't that different because I still use fiction to explore all the things that are important to me. So the Authenticity Project, one of the main um, main characters, Hazard, is an addict. And through him, I was sort of able to explore that whole process of getting sober, but in a way that was much less personal and exposing for me um, and allowed me to look at it with a sort of from a distance, which was quite interesting. Um, so, you know, so my books, my fiction explores things like um, addiction and social media and uh, ageism and uh, bullying and coercive control, you know, all these things that I think are really fascinating, um, you know, I can explore through uh, through my characters. And I love doing that. I think I need to go out and get it today because I've got a million sobriety books and I watch a million sober videos and addiction this, addiction that, and I need something like this in my life, I think. Oh, well, let me know what you think of Hazard. Oh, I will do. And so what's next for you? Uh, well, my second novel comes out later this year, so uh, end of May, and it's called, actually in the UK, it's called The People on Platform 5. And it's, it's, a, it's about, uh, you know, do, have you ever done a regular commute, Dave? You know, yeah, where you yeah. the same, same bus or the same train yeah. every day. And you know how you bump into the same yeah. people, but you never talk because we're British and we don't talk to strangers on public transport. Yeah. <laughs> but you do get to know them and you sort of probably give them little nicknames and you imagine what their lives are like. And and during lockdown, you know, I was thinking, God, I really miss those days of being in a small space with lots of people. And and I started thinking, you know, what would happen if you were on a commute like that and you actually something happened that made you start talking to the people around you? You know, what might that lead to? And it's oh. again, it's the whole issue of community that I'm really interested in. Um, so so this is about a group of people who meet on a commute um, when one of them nearly dies and, and chokes on a grave and somebody gives him the Heimlich maneuver and saves his life. And that starts a whole series of, of things happening. So, uh, so yeah, so that, that. Comes, out, comes out later this year. I love that. And because one of my favourite films was Sliding Doors. Mm, yeah, I love that film too. And when you look at the two narratives there and, you know, as you say, we – we sort of like acknowledge each other. We we know who they are and what they wear and whatever, but you never talk unless you've got a puppy or a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and then that just opens up the conversation <laughs> to feel safe, doesn't it? But Claire, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk to you for literally days on end. No, well, likewise. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier, meeting you was one of the, the great treats for me of, of getting sober so I'm really oh. delighted to have, have had this chance to to chat so thank you thank you for that and um next time lunch is on me <laughs> I, think it's on me. I think you paid last time or did I I can't remember you did, you <laughs> oh, did I okay yeah. it is on you then <laughs> all right thank you so much Claire Oh, thank you. And uh, anyone who's who's listening to this doing dry January, keep on going and think about 100 days. Um, just, uh, yeah, that's that's when that's when things start getting really, really good. Absolutely. All right. See you soon, Claire. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app 
Sober Dave on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.